Cindy was telling me a story this week that I found funny, I found enjoyable. She was in the bathroom and she was putting on her makeup and Austin was there watching her. And as she was putting on her makeup, she was putting on her mascara. And Austin was just staring at her. She was using this brush. And finally, she looked down at Austin and said, listen, Austin, this is something only ladies do. Only ladies wear mascara. And of course, at age seven, I know. He said, but we, man, he said, but we, we have to shave. So we have to, and then he did this really long face. We have to go. And then he said, I don't know if I like that. Cindy was telling me that I thought, how does a little boy learn how to shave? How does a little boy learn how to do the things that men do? How does a little girl learn how to do the things that, that women do? And the answer is that they watch the examples that are before them within the community of a family. My dad used an electric razor. I, I can't think, you know, guys, you know what I mean? It just leaves me burning all the time. And so I had to learn how to use a, a razor. And I remember being about five years old. Sometimes those learning lessons can be kind of dangerous. I was five years old and I was at Uncle Bob and house and um, Uncle Bob and Aunt Gertie were watching me. They were friends of the family. And he used, now, unless you're my age, you probably, you will not remember these, injector razors. And they had a little compartment on them and you push this little button, you put them in the, inside the, the razor and you would push the, the razor inside, the blade inside. And, and I remember finding them and thinking, oh, this is, this is what Uncle Bob uses to shave. And I came downstairs about five minutes after being in the bathroom and suddenly my Aunt Gertie came down and said, Keith, were you playing with Uncle Bob's racers? And I thought, how did she know? Might have been the blood all over the, the bathroom. As sliding those razors, I had cut my fingers. Sometimes there's some danger in having to learn and and a little boy has to learn some things. We were teaching Austin yesterday how you walk around on top of a roof. Um, you know, that's something that guys do when they clear off branches and stuff. But women can do it too, but we were teaching them how to do that. And that could be dangerous if you don't do it the right way. But sometimes the lessons that are taught from those who are more experienced or those that are less experienced or those who are older to those that are younger can be very very serious. A book that I read many years ago and then came out as a mini-series was the book called Band of Brothers. Stephen Ambrose is one of my favorite historical writers. And in Band of Brothers, there's one particular soldier. He's a sergeant. And in the, the series, in his, his nickname became Bull. His name was actually Denver Rattleman. And Bull was said to be one of the best soldiers that those that had written the book, those that had experienced him, had ever known. 
And what made Bull such a great soldier, such a great sergeant, was how he handled the recruits that came into his squad. There's a great scene in the book and also in the movie where there are these young recruits who are about to jump into combat and Bull is helping them to get ready. They actually don't end up jumping, but he's helping them get ready. And, and he tells this young recruit that's just recently in, as part of his squad, you know, you wear your rifle this way because if you don't wear it that way, it's going to come up and hit you when your parachute opens. And you don't need all this stuff in your pack. And he's throwing things out. And what he is doing is he is teaching that young recruit how to do the warfare that they're about to face. You are at a great advantage Someone who was coming in to be a part of Bull's squad. Because he would teach you well how to fight the battle that was before you. In Philippians chapter 3, and beginning in verse 18, Paul is going to tell us about those that teach us well how to fight the battle that we are involved in. Now, we're not in so much a battle with our culture. I get concerned when we begin to talk about Christianity in a militant kind of way. Our battle is not with culture. That's the place of our testimony. That's the place of our light. That is the place that we are to be different. Our battle is not primarily political, although is it okay to take stands? Of course to make sure we do it in a proper way. God's word says that the primary battle that you and I are involved in is right here in our brains, in our minds. The spiritual battle where we need to make sure that there is victory, the place we need to make sure that the enemy is defeated is not so much in the world that's in God's hands. We're to be faithful. But where we are to be involved in the battle is in the ways that we think, in our mindset, in our attitude, in our perception. God says that we are changed by the renewing of our mind, by the way that we perceive the world, perceive ourselves, perceive God, and how we choose to think about all that is around us and what is life. That's the battle that we are involved in. And as we come here to Philippians chapter 3, and beginning in verse 18, we learn this. It is the battle for our minds that will determine the patterns of our lives. How you live will be based on how you think. Again, I, I love having a grandson who's, I'm able to spend so much time with because I watch as he is learning to think differently and teaching him that how he chooses to perceive the world will determine how he lives, the choices that he will make. I loved doing that when my children were young and the the interactions and the discussions that we would have as to how you need to perceive the world and what the world is all about. And how we think is what we are. 
Now, as Paul is developing this section here in Philippians chapter 3, there's a very interesting way in which he does that. Beginning in verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3, he says this, Join with others in the midst of this community in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the patterns we give. He's talking about the examples. He's talking about the sergeant bulls. He's talking about those who are in battle, men and women, and who have done a good job, have learned how to battle well in the midst of the battle for their mind, in the midst of the battle spiritually that we are involved in. Paul says, take note of them. Live within a community where you can take notice of those who show wisdom and are those examples. The reason for being a church is many. It's myriad. But one of them for gathering together is that I might learn from the example of others as they battle the battle of the mind well. To learn to think like they think. Some of them are older. Some of them are younger. But I want to learn how to battle this well. So Paul says, take note of them. And then he gives two reasons why. We're going to look at one of them this week and one of them next week. When he begins with a very important word, and the English translations don't always translate the, the conjunctions, the, 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 the ways in which they transition from one sentence to the other. But what Paul will say is, for this reason, And the very first reason he gives why we need to take note of those that are around us is for, in verse 18, as I have often told you before, and now say even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross, and we're involved in a battle. Not out there, here. Paul says, learn from those that battle well, that fight well. As he begins this, he's talking about a mindset, a way of thinking. And in the scriptures, there's only two ways to think. You either think like Christ, you either think like the spirit would lead us, or you think like the world. In what we perceive around us, we are either thinking biblically, Or we're thinking fleshly. That's the choice. Now, there are degrees of that. There are focuses of that. Yes, the children are crying, so the mothers have to go check. Uh, There are all kinds of degrees of that that might exist. But it is either or that we have to choose. And so Paul says, as we are thinking about our mindset, it's the word that's so important all the way through this. Remember, it began all the way back in chapter 2 and verse 5, actually begins in chapter 2 and verse uh, 1, 2, and 3, where he says, be like-minded, think in this way, share this mindset. And then in verse 6, he says, I mean, in verse 5, he says, in chapter 2, your attitude, your mindset, your thinking, the way you perceive the world, the very philosophy of your life 
are to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then that idea of mindset continues. As in verse 17 in chapter 3, he says, Join me in following my example, brothers. Literally, it's saying, follow those that think like this. And take note of those that think this way. In chapter 4, when he's going to talk about the women who are battling within the church, he tells them that they need to think in similar ways. It is the philosophy, the way that we choose to perceive life that will determine everything in our lives. If I believe that God is real and God is sovereign, it will change how I view every situation in my life. If I believe that a crucified crucified life is the way to live my life, it will change all of my relationships and all of my interactions. If I believe God's word is the source of wisdom and certainty in my life, it changes everything that I do. If I believe there is an eternity waiting for me and that what I do now will echo into eternity, it changes every decision I make. It is my philosophy of life, my mindset. And Paul says, that's where the battle is. Here. To think the way God would have us to think. In the Psalms and in Proverbs, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. And then lives like that. One of two ways to live. One of two ways to think. Biblically, we either think as if God exists and has revealed himself in scripture and in his son and indwells us with the Holy Spirit, and provides for us an eternal relationship with him through that son. Or we make choices that are in opposition to that. That's what Paul talks about when he talks in Romans chapter 8. And I like the English Standard Version here of this verse. For those who live according to the flesh, who have their minds set, who think according to the flesh... They set their minds on earthly things. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Remember those two phrases. We're going to come back to them. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh can not please God. You have a choice. And in everything that comes into my mind, in my life, every situation, every event, every relationship, I look at it and ask the question, will I choose to respond and perceive this through eyes of that understand God's presence and God's sovereignty and God's will and purpose, or I look at it through the flesh. That's the choice. We can have a mindset that is that of the world. And as I was trying to think through the characteristics, I I think it's these three things. That mindset is based 
on our natural, Paul uses the word fleshly, bent, to exclude and resist God. Our natural bent as humans is to do it, as Frank Frank Sinatra said, to do it my way. It is a mindset that is based on an earthly perspective apart from God. You ever seen the bumper sticker that says, he who has the most toys at the end wins? How sad. That is world thinking. That is fleshly thinking. That is a materialistic thinking that says this life is it. Earthly, fleshly thinking puts me at the center of all that I do. My life is about me. You know the unholy trinity? Me, myself, and I. The opposite of that is the mindset of Christ. Found in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. I'm sorry, not Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Found in the description of what Christ was willing to do. Found in the love that he had for his disciples and the love that he had for his father. Found in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16. Found in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. Found in the description of Christ's love for us. And to have that mindset, it's that mindset that seeks to view everything in conformity to the leading of the Spirit, in submission to God's revelation. The first question is, what does God say about this? What has God revealed about this? God, what would you have me do? The second characteristic is that it it seeks to conform everything to the example of Christ. Have this mindset in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus says you are to follow the example that he set. We are to love one another as he loved us. Do you ever find it very interesting how the Old Testament changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament? In the Old Testament, it was love one another, you know, Love others as you love yourselves. In the New Testament, it's love others as Christ loved them. That's a much higher standard. And then lastly, it's a mindset that seeks to place God at the center of all that we do. That the first question in my mind is not what makes me comfortable, is not what makes me happy, is not what brings me the most pleasure, is not those kinds of things that seem to be the philosophy of our world. The first question in my mind is what would God have me do? What would my father have me do? How would my father have me respond? The two ways that God's word presents to us in order to think Now, the question becomes this. So what? 
What's the problem? All right, so I choose to think according to the flesh. So what? Or I, think to, I choose to, to, to think according to God. So what? Why? Why is that a big deal? Why does Paul make such a big deal about this? Why is this such a focus? Why does Paul, as he's done all of this theology in Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, suddenly come to chapter 12? And says that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. Why such the big focus? Well, that's what Paul was going to say here. He says, learn the example of those that think well. Learn from those that have battled the battle of the mind well. Learn from them because of these reasons. First of all, earthly thinking is catastrophic. It will destroy you. If you choose to live your life according to the flesh, you will die. And all the ramifications of that word. In both its figurative and many times its literal sense. As Paul is dealing with this whole idea of the ways that we think according to the flesh, He says there in verse 18, For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Thinking like the world will destroy you. Earthly thinking makes one an enemy of any lifestyle based on the cross of Christ. Do you notice what Paul says there? It says that as we choose to think according to the world, we are enemies of the cross of Christ. Literally, he says this, our walk, our life, the way we live life will be as those who are enemies of the cross. We will oppose what it means to live a life that demonstrates the other-centeredness, the God-centeredness, the love, the sacrifice of a crucified life. We saw this a few weeks ago. When the church in Charleston went through the killing of so many in their congregation. And you remember how many of those who were the family of those victims, responded. As in court, they stood up and said, we forgive you, as they spoke to the shooter. That was astounding. Do you know what was even more astounding and disturbing? Was the condemnation those families received because of their willingness to extend forgiveness. The editorials, the Facebook posts, the comments of how foolish that kind of thinking was. The Bible says, when you and I think according to the world, we will fight against living a crucified life of forgiveness and sacrifice and love and honoring God 
we will fight against it. We are enemies of the lifestyle of the cross. And then Paul says this, earthly thinking results in destruction. When somebody dies at the end of their lives, and I've had the opportunity to be with people at the end of their lives. In Louisiana, we used to have a ministry in the nursing homes and we'd go in once a week and, and do a, or once or twice a month, I don't remember how often it was, but we'd go in and we'd do a service and I would get to know some of the, the older people that were in that particular um, retirement home. And there were those that had lived their lives selfishly all their lives. And in their last days, what they sensed was grief. What have I done with my life? I have lots of this and lots of that, but did my life really count? Then you have those that have lived their lives like Christ lived his. There was one old black woman that I used to love to interact with. She was always smiling. She was always interacting. She was always, I remember the day that her son was killed. And I saw her like two or three days later and she was saying, you know, I know my son's in God's presence now and this hurts and I'm grieved, but I'm going to praise God because I have hope in the midst of this loss. And I thought here was a woman who could know life in the midst of death. And when she finally died, I found out she had been um, instrumental in planting like three or four different churches. She had just hundreds of people that had felt the impact of her life because she was willing to live like Christ. To live like the world is destruction. Remember those verses we read in Romans chapter 8? For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Death of ministry. Death of relationships. Death of purpose. Death of meaning. And death itself. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Paul says, don't think that way. Don't think like the world. Not because God is some ogre in the sky that says, "Ah, ah, you're having fun, aren't you? Stop it. Because God knows how he designed us to live. How we were meant to live in the garden. How we were meant to give our lives and live our lives ultimately for him and pouring our lives into others. That's where meaning and purpose are found. Not to live lives like the world says. But there's another problem with earthly thinking and that is it's convoluted. It's really messed up. That's where Paul continues and it's one of the most amazing verses. It is a verse that to me 
is the polar opposite of the philosophy of every believer's life. And it is the number one struggle that I believe every single believer has. And that is the idols that we create in our lives. Every single person here is an idolater. Every single person has idols in their lives that they are worshiping. Every one of us has God's little G in our lives that we are more committed to serving than Christ and our heavenly father. That's what Paul says there in Romans, I'm sorry, Romans, in Philippians chapter three and verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in shame. What he's talking about there, I think, and there's a lot of debate as to exactly what he means. He's talking about the emptiness that every single person, every fallen person, excuse me, living in a fallen world, (coughs) experiences. All of us struggle with the emptiness of this world. And the way he says that is that word that their God is their, how does it translate it? Stomach. Literally, the word is the word we get colon from. It means an empty place. Sometimes the word just is used for gut, and I've mentioned this before. Sometimes it's used of the stomach. Sometimes it's used of a woman's womb. And the idea behind it, it is something that is empty, that longs to be filled. A woman that longs to be a mother longs for that womb to be filled. Our guts long to be filled, some more than others. But that's a struggle that we all have. You, again, I've mentioned it before. When you're here on a Sunday morning and you get the urriers. When everyone around you hears your stomach go, it's crying out to be filled. Please let the sermon be short so I can get to the fellowship. I'm longing for those pretzels. I'm longing for those bagels. As that is true physically, it's true spiritually and internally. In our fallenness, we are born into a world that leaves us apart from God, empty. And we long to fill it. We long to fill the loneliness we feel. The times when we feel abandoned. The times when we feel unworthy or or betrayed or rejected. The times we feel flawed and inept or incompetent. The times we feel inadequate. Do you ever feel that way? Go like this. Of course you do. You learned it as a child, this big. When the scripture says there is foolishness bound up in the heart of a child, a child will seek to make his life work apart from God. That's our bent. So we try to fill that emptiness. We try to numb that shame. We try to ignore the inadequacy. 
And what Paul is saying is our gods, our idols become anything that works to ease that numbness or pain. Sometimes we call it addiction when we use alcohol or we use drugs or we use food or we use exercise or we use whatever to try to deal with the emptiness and loneliness and and hurt and pain that is inside just to numb it a little while. Sometimes we use wealth and power and relationships just to give us a sense of feeling wanted or a sense of feeling accepted or a sense of feeling loved. But the problem is the world always leaves us down. Every time there's a Super Bowl and I watch those guys after they win the game, And they're screaming and they're yelling and the parade comes a a few days later and everything else. And they're at the top of their game. Life is good. But what happens a month later? When no one barely remembers or where everyone barely remembers. And the emptiness is there. What happens when the children move out? And that's been the identity of your life for the last 20 years. What happens when you retire or the job is taken away? That's been the way that you've defined your value and worth, your adequacy and your sufficiency. What happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when you have all the toys and you still feel bored? It doesn't satisfy. But we strive after them. And they become our God. They become our idol. And we are more committed to numbing or getting or avoiding than to doing that which is right and good. See, Paul goes on to say, not only is their God their stomach, Their glory is in their shame. Such false theology makes us blind to the heinous nature of our actions. We begin to believe I'm on a mission for my God. We see it in a group like ISIS who actually justifies beheading and crucifying and murdering, what, in the name of my God. But don't condemn them until you first look at your own heart. Yes, we should condemn them because what they do is wrong. But we have the same struggle. You know what abortion is all about? Abortion is just like child slaughter in the Old Testament when they would slaughter their infants before their gods, except that was the god Moloch, and now it's the god convenience or financial security or a continuation of hedonistic pleasure. Same action, different god. Or the hatred We feel for somebody at work or in church 
who gets more attention than we do. Why? Because they are destroying our God of recognition or applause. I was going to use a couple of lines from the Blues Brothers. But the movie's kind of crude, and so I didn't want to seem like I was supporting it. But the theme in the Blues Brothers is this. Everything becomes excusable if you believe you're on a mission from God. What's your God? The man or woman that sacrifices their family at the God of career? The man or woman who sacrifices their marriage at the God of sexual pleasure? Pornography? We all struggle with gods in our lives, believing that they will bring us satisfaction, and they never do. One of the scariest things about thinking earthly is that it's ubiquitous. Don't you love that word? It means everywhere. There was this radio show we used to listen to when we were going to Bible camp over in Alabama with the, with the kids, and it was called Chicken Man. Buck, 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 Chicken Man. I don't know if you ever heard that up north. And the phrase that I always followed was, he's everywhere, he's everywhere. They never said on the radio, he's ubiquitous. That's what it means. Fleshly thinking is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Now, of course, the world is ubiquitous in its earthly thinking. That's all it's got. And so the whole debate over gay marriage where where people come and say, I will seek my own pleasure even if it means the destruction of the very foundation of every single society and culture that has ever lived. And so if it destroys the family, so what? Do you know why, just on a secular level, we have marriage? It's to protect the biological family. And as we've seen the destruction of the biological family, that's not condemning those that, that are single moms or that are, you know, uh, you know have, have been married before. I'm not condemning that. But I'm saying in Scripture there's an ideal, and the ideal is the biological family where a mom and a dad love each other and raise their kids lovingly and love God together. And as our society has chosen to destroy that protection, we are seeing the destruction of our society, of lives, of families. Of course the world thinks that way. We see it as we we look at this whole Planned Parenthood thing. Of course the world sees things in a materialistic way. And life is devalued. Of course they think that way. Are we shocked? And we should be shocked at what's happening. But not that people think that way. We see it in the world all around us. But you know what's really scary? What is heartbreaking. In fact, Paul says 
I weep. And as he goes on, he talks about the fact that it's part of the Christian community. And the ways that he uses the nouns and the verbs, he's saying, you know what's really sad? Is that earthly thinking is among us. It's often predominant among us. Several years ago, I had the opportunity. Haddon Robinson is probably one of the best preachers in, of our time. He was the president of Western or, uh, Denver Seminary. Then he went to Gordon-Conwell, and he's been in a number of different places. And I had the, the scary opportunity to be the person that preached before Haddon Robinson came on one time. And I had an opportunity to interact with Haddon Robinson, and I asked him a question. I said to him, Haddon, what is the number one failure of the Christian community today? And I, I will never forget what he said. He said, Keith, if you had asked me that question 30 years ago, that was 15 years ago, so it would have been 45 years ago. He said this. Oops. What just happened? He said, a generation ago, I would have said the way the evangelical and the church dealt with the whole issue of racism. That really within the church, there was a belief that separation was good and a failure to see that all of mankind, every man and woman, every child and unborn child is made in the image of God. That kind of racism destroyed the testimony of the church. And we're still struggling with it. But I thought about some of the other things what is it now? One of them is consumerism. I see it rampant in the church. The idea that I'm in this church for a while because I get the most out of that church and I can consume the resources and they give me the most and I get the best, you know, the, the most for the least amount of money. They don't require me to give quite so much. But when that stops, I move to this church because they give me a better product. And then I move to this church because they give me a better product. And then I move to this church because they give me a better product. Is that how you treat your family? Is that how you treat a family? We come into the back of the church believing that the purpose why we are here is to get something. God may choose to give us something. He does. He lovingly does that. But God says we gather together to live like Christ. To be other-centered. Our materialism. We live as though this life was it. We fail to think about eternity. The materialism that, that somehow says, you know, what is the body? What is the pleasure? What is now is what's most important. Because Paul was able to co coin words, I wanted to coin a word. So I can coin this word, entertainmentism. We are so committed to being entertained. Do you know one of the greatest sins of the world today is boredom? We will fight that tooth and nail. The thought of being quiet and sitting still, we have to just be entertained all the time. Narcissism, me, myself, and I. Sensual hedonism. Boy, that has so invaded the church. 
Why is it that all of these church leaders are being caught in adultery? Why is it that when there is a pastor's conference at some of the hotels, they have the highest level of pornographic viewing than at any other time that year? Why is it that pornography is such a difficult struggle for so many men and women? Why is it that sex outside of marriage is so dominant in our society? It's because we have the God of sensual hedonism that believes that physical pleasure is the most important purpose of my life. And then unbridled expediency. Whatever works, whatever I believe will give me the biggest bang for the buck. That's what controls my life. We should not think that way, beloved. It will lead to death in our own lives, in our society, in our churches. But you know what's scariest of all? What is most troubling is that fleshly thinking is in me. that I struggle with it in my own life. That all of us have those idols. And what is so hard is we're blind to them. I don't even see the idols in my life. The false gods. And so that's why Paul, when he began in verse 17... Join with others in following my example and find those who are examples. That's why he says it, because it's such a battle. This is where he ends. Earthly thinking requires a community of examples to counteract its influence. I need you to help me see the struggle in my life. The gods in my life. The idols in my life the place where I think by the flesh and not by the spirit. To build the kind of relationships where you have earned the right to speak into my life and I have earned the right to speak into yours. We need community. We need examples to win the battle of the Father, thank you for Paul's call to us, for his call for us to be a part of a community, to find those who have battled well and to learn from their examples. Father, it begins with a relationship with you through your son. That's where all of this starts, to be able to think like Christ. And as we do each Sunday morning, we invite anyone who's not certain of their relationship with you to come and speak to somebody about that. Father, we also thank you that you give us examples like Paul and others. People in our life that can help ferret out those idols and those false gods. Who can be that community that helps us to learn more and more what it means to think like you. We thank you for that, for your glory and your kingdom. And for your work in our lives. Amen.